Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow, buddy! You look healthy and happy. Veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. That's why he developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of your pet food myself. Okay, okay. I'll start with a salad. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. He treated them as if they needed him more than he needed them. Somebody was getting a bit leery with him. Um, Guy would escalate the conflict and he would get very leery with him, but he would also let them be known that he was a very heavy character with very heavy people behind him. But he, he just knew how to play that role. He'd also boxed as a young man. I mean, he could look after himself. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The life of an undercover operative embedded deep in the world of drug gangs and money launderers is far from ordinary. And it's rare that we get an insight into the personality traits and skills a human being needs to handle such a high-risk situation. But in his new book, The Betrayer, elite undercover customs officer Guy Stanton tells writer Peter Walsh just what it took to live under a mask while mixing with cartel bosses, drug lords and enforcers and trapping them through their trust. This week, I'm talking to Walsh about the extraordinary psychological tools necessary to live as a deep fake, about the lengths that are gone to create a legend and about some of the greatest achievements of ordinary people who take extraordinary risks to fight crime. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Peter, this isn't really a question a journalist should be asking, but uh, I'm going to go for it anyway. Um, How did you meet Guy Stanton? I mean, he's an undercover he cannot be identified, even though you've written his life story. You know, the general public still don't know who that person is. He's he's operating under his undercover name. So how did you guys come to get together? About six or seven years ago, I was researching another book on the history of the drugs trade in the UK. And it involved interviewing scores of former customs and excise investigators and Every so often, an interviewer would mention this mysterious um, undercover operative called Guy, who'd done the most incredible work that they didn't really know much about and couldn't tell me much about themselves, but they assured me was um, uh, sort of groundbreaking and quite extraordinary. But they nearly all said it's very unlikely that he'd ever speak to you. So you know yourself, Nicola, as a journalist, that's a challenge. Um, So I kept asking around and eventually I managed to get word to him and asked if he would meet me. And we arranged, like all good um, 
clandestine meetings to get together under the clock at Waterloo Station in London. And um, this burly, bearded, very tough looking character in, a, in an overcoat, uh, looking very much the sort of uh, London gangster, turned up. It was extremely pleasant. We sat down and, and drank coffee and that's how it started, really. That was the first time I met him. Right. And I mean, so just for Irish listeners in particular, you know, customs here maybe aren't as high profile as the UK customs. And I wonder, are UK customs still as hands on and high risk with their undercover operatives as they once were? Was Guy Stanton there in a particular moment when, um, you know, there was money to be spent on trying to bring down these drug gangs and What's the situation like now? Absolutely. He was, in the, he was in the right place at the perfect time. Customs in the UK at that time were probably more akin to the DEA in America than customs in most countries. They had a very proactive role in investigating international drug trafficking. In a lot of countries, that role is subordinated uh, in customs and is taken by the police. But in the UK, for various historical reasons the customs claimed primacy over investigating importations. It often led to arm wrestles with the police who wanted to take on this function themselves. Around um, about 1990, customs realised that there were the drug trade, as you know, was continuing to boom. Despite all of their best efforts, um, more and more drugs were coming into the country. We were seeing a rise in things like ecstasy and cocaine, especially in that period. And they reviewed their methods and decided that one of the things they were not very good at was inserting trained undercover operatives into the drug world to find out what was going on. So they decided to form a new unit of a sort of elite selected officers from within their own ranks and to look around the world for the best practice in this sort of work. And they found that the best in the world are really intelligent outside-the-box undercover operations were the Canadians and the Dutch. So they uh, visited and had visits from officers from those countries, but they also found a unit in Manchester, Greater Manchester Police, that had been investigating football hooligan gangs and armed robbers and drug dealers in Manchester. And they were also using some really innovative techniques. So bringing all this expertise together, Customs uh, formed this unit called Beta Projects in the strictest secrecy and initially recruited just over half a dozen officers to train and go out into the underworld, drugs specifically, but they were used against other things like VAT fraud, uh, tobacco smuggling and so on. And their job was kind of unique in a way because... The police traditionally trained their officers to go out and do what were called bust buys. So you'd have the same thing in, in Dublin. You might have a gang that occupies a street corner where they sell drugs. The cops would go in as users, would make a few buys, would build up the evidence with surveillance cameras, etc., and then would arrest the gang. Customs didn't want that. They wanted long-term, deep infiltration of serious importation gangs, and they wanted intelligence. So the role of these officers was not to be involved in a sort of wham-bam bus by, but to penetrate the underworld and just constantly send back through their handler, each one had an individual handler, anything they could learn, any information they could glean was passed back. So it was a, it was a long-term role. 
it was a precarious role and it was a new role. So it was a, it was a real sort of groundbreaking initiative and they had to do it in strict secrecy. But my God, exciting to be picked for that. It would have been exactly right, right up my street. I can imagine not saying no to it. Um, interesting, the sort of type of people they picked for it. Now, I'll just point out that in your book, The Betrayer, there's an interesting combination between you and Guy Stanton, because as you've told me, he knew what was going on on the ground, but he knew little of what his information was being used for, whereas you are bringing to it the wider picture. And uh, he's been set out into the field. And one of the, the things we'll talk about is how he's operating on a need to know basis in case something goes wrong. And, you know, he's he's brought in and a gun put to his head or whatever. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He knows he's bringing back information and he's passing it in. But apart from that, he doesn't always know where it's going. But just to start with how they picked that team and how... Guy was one of those that was chosen. What were the kind of qualities and personality traits that they were looking for? Well, they kind of profiled the drugs trade. And what they realized was that the drugs trade needs certain kinds of people to function. So transport is extremely important. Um, Shipping drugs from abroad, often done at that time in private yachts or boats, say cannabis from Morocco, that was sailed into UK waters, or even cocaine sailing across the Atlantic in a, in a yacht or small vessel. Lorry drivers who would often um, be recruited by criminal gangs to bring drugs in from the near continent, um, the Netherlands and Belgium. They needed money men, financiers, to launder their money and get their money back. So they were looking at people who would suit those kind of roles and they could they could infiltrate into gangs to provide the gangs with a service that those gangs needed. Guy's role was kind of unique in that he was a sort of overall Mr. Fixer, almost the boss of his own transport organisation. So he and a colleague um, went to Europe and actually purchased a trawler with HM Customs money and he would then make this available to drug gangs wanting to ship five, six tons of cannabis or on one um, incredible occasion, one and a half tons of heroin um, from producer countries into European or UK waters. He was kind of a, a, a guy who can. If, if you mm. wanted something doing, you, wanted, you went to him. If you wanted your money laundering, you went to him. If you wanted a, a nice Rolex watch that was a bit hooky, you went to him. He was a guy who could supply things, but his colleagues were a variety of people with all of those skills. So another one of his colleagues who was extremely uh, adept was the main money launderer. And he was set up in an office in Mayfair in uh, London. Um, and he could create bogus bank accounts for criminals all over the world in um, low-tax jurisdictions such as Jersey or the Isle of Man or Dubai. And when he won the trust of senior members of the Cali cartel and other major drug gangs. And he was the man who was supposed to get the money back to them once the drugs had been sold here. So they offered this full gamut of services. Um, others would be sailors uh, and they would spend their days working incognito, based maybe in the Mediterranean, just hanging around ports in their yacht. Um, offering their services to any itinerant drug gang who wanted to use them. So it, it was a very exciting and um, 
I guess in some ways, very attractive job, but it also came with downsides, long hours away from home, risks, long periods of boredom, and you had to be able to psychologically cope with all of those things. Mm. So Guy is sort of sent out into the underworld as a mister, you know, as a fixer, essentially, an underworld fixer. He has his own boat that he can that can be used for transport and he can source things. But how does he arrive? Like, how do you get somebody? Does he have a backstory? Has that been created for him by customs? And you can't just rattle up one day. And, and where do you go even? Yes. So they, they created total what they call legends for all of the their officers. And these legends had to really withstand close scrutiny. So they would have fake passports, sometimes numerous fake passports, they would be bought um, flats um, or apartments and they would have things lying around these places that would kind of lend weight to their legend. They would be given cars to drive, sometimes very flash cars. One of them was um, uh, a Sky Blue Rolls Royce, which had actually been uh, confiscated on another job from a VAT fraudster. A guy wore some incredibly expensive Rolex watches, one of which had been given him by the Dutch police that was confiscated from a drug dealer. These sort of things always impress drug gangs, um, you know, a nice watch or kettle, as they call it in the in the London slang. So they would have to build up these really strong backstories. They would have to know if, if they had a, bought a flat, they'd get to know their local milkman, they'd go in the local pub, they'd be seen around so that if anybody really did a full trawl through them, um, it would withstand that. And they, they learned very early on, as you, as you alluded to earlier, Nicola, not to tell the undercovers too much. So the operational team that his intelligence would be going to would not share what they knew with him because his character wouldn't know those things. And they learned that from, from harsh experience, that um, they had an undercover who was working on one job against a big a drug dealer whose name was Edward and um, customs through other intelligence methods had learned that he was often referred to by his family as Ted. So on one occasion in conversation, the undercover who was, who was told this referred to the guy as Ted and the guy quickly jumped on him and said, "How? why are you calling me Ted? You've never heard me call that name. Only my family know that. How would you know that? And he had to sort of blag his way out of it. So there was very simple little slips like that, that they had to make sure the undercover didn't know those things. And look, it's a very paranoid world that they're, they're, they're working in where people are constantly second guessing. There's the constant fear that there will be another, an undercover placed within them. Um, so you presumably have to stay very calm if you're questioned about anything and you have to try and almost become an actor or an actress that is playing the part all the time. Guy was totally an actor. In fact, he actually, he told me he actually used um, character traits and tics that he'd picked up from television and film. He quite often did this, uh, little sayings that he'd um, picked up. There was one from the film Casablanca where one of the characters said, I I'm just a poor corrupt official. And he would use that as a kind of a jokey um, response sometimes to people. But his character was a hard guy so he would often face these guys down which you can imagine is quite a, a test in itself so if somebody was getting a bit leery with him um, guy would escalate the conflict and he would get very leery with him but he would also let them be known that he was a very heavy character with very heavy people behind him and invariably they backed down 
Um, but he he just knew how to play that role. He'd also boxed as a young man. I mean, he could look after himself, but he didn't want a conflict. He didn't want a fight, but he he had to let these people know that he wouldn't be pushed around. He was quite prepared to walk away from a deal. He was quite prepared to throw his teddy out of the pram and storm out of a meeting if he felt that was the way to go. Because again, that boosted his credibility that um, mm. you would think that an undercover would be trying to ingratiate themselves with a gang and learn as much as they can. But if you did that, you'd be you'd act quite suspiciously. So he did the opposite. He treated them as if they needed him more than he needed them. And so that kind of reverse psychology worked very strongly in his favour. Um, the other way, just to go back to something you asked earlier about how they got into these gangs, it was really important in, in his successful career. He was initially a, uh, introduced by an informant, uh, a very well-connected criminal informant in the London area, who was himself a kind of a godfather in his community. And um, he, he was particularly knowledgeable about the Turkish heroin scene. And he was prepared for Guy to go and accompany him into this underworld and to vouch for him. And so by having somebody who was already established in that world vouching for him, that was the way he, got, he first got his foot in the door. But that in itself was a very precarious relationship. I was hugely interested when I was reading the book in the choosing of this uh, Beta Projects grouping and how they were handpicked and the kind of tests they were put under, uh, you know, to establish whether or not they'd be good in the field, because there can't be too many human beings that would take on this job and would put themselves physically into the heart of a cartel in order to bring back information. You couldn't actually, I don't think, find a more highly dangerous job if you tried Um but they did, the, the customs, they, they did check them out in a lot of ways before they actually sent them into the field to see if they had the psychological abilities to cope with the, the role. And one of those things was how they handled pressure, whether they obviously went off on one, they, you know, so in their training, they often sometimes would carry out tests accusing them of, you know, being whatever. Sometimes they would make make suggestions about their sexuality and their integrity to see how they'd react to that. Um, but, you know, they also check their anxiety levels because there's an excellent piece in the book about how anxiety causes deafness. And I had to go back on that a few times to work that out. And of course it does. Because when you start getting worked up about something and anxious about something, you can't hear advice. And you can't hear instructions. So I, I think they probably adopted some of this stuff from the military, but you're quite right. There were two mantras that they learned on the training course. Um, anxiety causes deafness and never be caught in a lie. Mm. If you caught in an obvious lie, that would obviously expose you to um, you know, further questioning and retribution. Um, they saw psychologists uh, generally about every six months to just assess um, their stress levels they the training course involved things like um, being dropped in the uh, wilds in the middle of nowhere with a 20 pence piece and some instructions that were very hard to follow again kind of military style training a lot of it was built around the concept of disappointment that um, a lot of investigations a lot of drug investigations end they don't end successfully for, for police or customs. There's a lot of disappointment. A lot of things go wrong. A lot of smuggles never make it. They take months to set up, as you know, but these guys often they're not, don't know what they're doing. So 
They wanted to see also how these candidates would cope with disappointment. So sometimes they set them up in exercises and they deliberately set up those exercises to fail without telling the candidates, just to see how did they react, how did they cope with that. So that was a really important part of it. But I think there's a shelf life, even for the very best undercovers, and, and Guy was the best of the best. There comes a certain period where it must start to seep into your personal life, seep into your other work, seep into your personality. And they're kept under constant review. And one of the things customs did well is when it looked like things were going wrong, they, they pulled them out. Sometimes the officers really resented that. They thought that they were still at their peak of their powers and they wouldn't accept that um, they, you know, they're, they're, uh, there was seepage into their own roles and their occupations. But they weren't the best people to judge it. It was the, the handlers and their bosses who did, did that. There's an excellent series I'm watching on uh, Disney Plus, which I believe at the moment called Snowfall, about the uh, arrival of crack cocaine into LA. And there's a CIA undercover called Teddy MacDonald who's working in it. And you can just, like, it's played really, really well. The psych psychological difficulties he's having with it, how concerned they are for him. Uh, but really, he's left in the field for too long. But anyway, it's a good series if you want to get lost in television in the coming months. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me and was a learning, because by the way, Peter, a lot of this was a learning curve for me. I was really glad to read it and to kind of keep these things in mind about anxieties and all this sort of stuff, because a lot of the stuff you can actually apply to normal life. You don't have to be working undercover. You know, your day to day dealings with people and your work and even relationships that, you know, obviously not lying and pretending to be somebody else. But a lot of the kind of the psychological tools are good. Um the slow release of information under torture as a survival mechanism. Now, I'm glad to know that just in case. So that was on the uh, that was on the training course. And that was one of the things that Guy was actually told he'd failed. They had a scenario where he was meeting a, a drug gang in a in a garage. And the next thing they locked all the doors and tied him to a chair and said that they knew he was an undercover officer. And of course, he denied it. And then he was told the scenario from then on was they were going to escalate. They were going to start punching him. Then if he didn't admit it, they were going to start torturing him further and so on and so on and so on. And Guy's response to this uh, was to keep denying that he was an undercover officer. And eventually, the eventual outcome would have been that he would have been killed. Now, he was told that he'd failed this because um, a, a guy from the military was on the same course did what they should have done, which is what they call a slow release of information. So when you're in that scenario, which is really seems quite hopeless, you release bits of information slowly. What this does, it prolongs your life, obviously, and it gives your backup team or the rest of your colleagues time to work out where you are, what's going on. So you drag it out, you survive as long as you can. And if that means slowly dripping, sometimes misinformation, but sometimes accurate information, you just keep that going as long as you can. And your torturers will keep, will keep you alive as long as they think you've still got something to tell them. So that was a new one on him and it was a new one on me as well. Yeah, and me, it's so useful to know. Um, and that sort of feeds into, in a way, that mantra that, and something I believe as well, your first and last security is yourself, really. You can have all these people who are out there who are on the end of an alarm system or who are on the end of a phone or whatever, but it's you yourself that has to really secure yourself. Yeah, and I think once you've got a lot of experience in the field, you develop the feel for that. You know when something's going pear-shaped 
and it's time to withdraw. Um, I mean, sometimes, again, Guy, he knew when a deal wasn't going to work out. He knew when a guy, not so much in a dangerous situation, but when someone was promising something he couldn't deliver. He had a very good, uh, he developed a very good eye and ear for sussing out time wasters. And he wouldn't, he just wouldn't give them the time of day, which again, mm. fed into his legend because then the word passed through the underworld that this guy's all business. He doesn't mess about, don't waste his time. Um, but he, he had a few very tricky scenarios that the last job he worked on was in Kenya, which was a huge heroin um, arrangement for a heroin smuggle against a very dangerous gang. And um, somebody within the Kenyan police during the sort of crucial point of the of the the undercover scenario leaked that uh, guy was in fact a, a british um officer and fortunately he wasn't with the bad guys when they got this information but he he was told through a contact that it, it had happened and they literally had to get to the airport as quickly as they could and get on the next flight and while he was at the airport he was actually called by the bad guy who he'd been dealing with who didn't let anything on, kept it completely straight. Oh, when are you coming to see me, Guy? I thought we'd arranged a meeting. So Guy kept up the pretense as well, but he knew if he went along with it, he'd have probably been taken out into the bush and never would have been heard of again. And, you know, tortured, which is, you know, the, the thought of that could be worth 10 times worse than dying quickly in those scenarios. In the early days when he was working as an undercover, um, like customs themselves had a lot to learn about this, this very high risk use of officers because they used to walk into the customs house buildings uh, on the days that they were having meetings or whatever. Now that came to an end and they 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 rented a, a another premises so they, they wouldn't be so obvious. But tell me a little bit about, you, you spoke there about Guy having Rolex watches. I think at one point he was driving a Mercedes car that had been seized in the Netherlands. So customs customs in other countries would borrow uh, your guys some of these trappings of wealth. <laughs> this, this became, once Beta Projects was up and running, this became a multinational project. They developed um, great cooperation with uh, the Dutch, the French, the Canadians, the Americans, they worked a lot with the, the DEA um, and even the FBI in, in the United States. Because drug trafficking is multinational, they needed these relationships. And it also enhanced their legends uh, both in both ways. So if, uh, if they could get a Dutch undercover officer over posing as a Dutch criminal and he would hang out in, Lon in, uh, in London with Guy and meet some of the people he knew, it enhanced both of their legends each way. So they were forever uh, borrowing. They, were, they would use each other's facilities. Like you say, I mean, they put a lot of money into this in the UK. So they had um, a couple of fake warehouses, which would have be staffed to be a girl on the desk answering the phone. Uh, they would have uh, dodgy goods, which they would sometimes buy from secondhand stores or whatever stacked around the warehouse. They would have lorries coming in and out, sometimes doing legitimate deliveries so that their drivers could build up a legitimate, look, this is a guy who reg regularly goes over to the continent and back again. They had, um, in the end, a small fleet of boats, not just the trawler, but others as well, almost a little, a mini Navy, lots of cars, watches, um, offices uh, and a real network they could tap into when they travelled abroad that people would supply them with things over there. Um, Guy flew so much uh, in first class that he was given a very rare black Amex card for his purchases because he, he bought a lot of his uh, stuff with that. Uh, and all of this added to the legend. Uh, all of this added to the... Um, 
the image that he wanted to portray of a proper international class. I mean, if anyone looked in his passport, he had stamps from Venezuela, Brazil, Colombia, Dubai, Pakistan. I mean, and legitimate stamps from all of these places. So um, that they're, uh, what they did was incredible, really. So who is now, these are just a few of the, the kind of operations he was actually on to describe them, because um, as I said earlier, he knew he was undercover and he was bringing back the information, but he mightn't have known the wider kind of investigation that was actually going on or why these individuals were being targeted. I was going to ask you, who's Heidi Landgraf? So Heidi uh, was a really um, interesting and groundbreaking American undercover officer. And she infiltrated the highest levels of the Colombian cartels by setting up a service to launder their money through banks. And um, she posed as the daughter, I think, of a either a successful Mexican um, drug trafficker or a successful corrupt banker, I can't quite remember which. But um, she was as cool as ice, um, totally professional, had these sort of luxury offices in the United States and... Um, she was rooting a lot of a lot of her clients' money was coming back from Europe, and she needed somebody to help her, if you like, or represent what she was doing over there. And so they came to Beta Projects and said, "Can you can you replicate what what Heidi is doing, but over here?" And so Customs had their own money laundering experts uh, set up undercover, and so they ran their end of the operation from um, uh, the offices in, in London. Um, the, the bad guys had no idea at all. I mean, it was, it, was, it was absolutely brilliantly done. There doesn't seem to have ever been any suspicions whatsoever. And um, eventually the sort of hammer fell and it led to dozens of arrests all over the world. And I, I think Heidi herself, I think, always kept a low profile, but at one time Michelle Pfeiffer was going to play her in a movie, but I'm, I'm not sure it's ever been made. So we, we're just discussing, we've been discussing with Guy who's likely to play him in. Play him. Yeah. Someone of that ilk would be fine. Yeah. So what happens these, uh, you know, types like Heidi and Guy when maybe, you know, you say there's a lot of disappointment out in the field, but when it works and when they get to court and when they bring people into the dock and they have to give evidence, how does that compromise they're them and how do they do that how do they give evidence what they tried to do in the uk was to try was to keep them out of court as much as they could obviously they have a duty to disclose to the defense anything which is relevant to the prosecution but if they had just supplied sort of intelligence that was never going to be used in court then they would generally be able to uh, keep the undercovers um, away from the court if they had to testify then they would seek from the court permission and it was usually granted to do it from behind a screen on one memorable occasion guy had to travel to the netherlands to give evidence in a massive cocaine trial and he was actually made up by a makeup artist with spectacles and a wig and the full the full hit they tended not to do that so much over here but they would um give evidence from behind a screen under a false name the defence, of course, would always try to penetrate this. They always wanted to know who the undercover was and exactly what he'd done. So it was sometimes the um, the cause of some lively debates in court because it is a covert method. It, and in some cases, you know, it's a black op. And um, 
necessarily much of it is going to be hidden and necessarily the defense will want to know everything they want to know what's hidden so uh, there, there were some contentious cases but they there was some stated law already in the uk which had been set down in previous undercover investigations so they knew roughly the parameters within which they could successfully work um what about the case of david hook because he of course had a little nice little connection here with ireland um, during the 1980s, we were often the destination of choice for a lot of major big UK drug traffickers. It was pr- prior to our Criminal Assets Bureau being established and they were obviously able to come here, buy large houses, properties, sometimes penthouse apartments in Dublin and a pad down the country. I'm thinking of Mickey Green and the lot. And they they sort of bedded down here, didn't they? And he was one of those Weirdly, he had bought a big house by Loch Derg, which is quite a religious. Yeah, so he, um, yeah, he had this kind of estate, I think, in in Clare, didn't he? Um, yes. Um, Customs had been after David Hook for years. He was he was a notorious smuggler of cannabis by the boatload into the UK, and went back to the days of Howard Marks in the nineteen seventies, and um, so. When they uh, when they kind of came across him uh, almost by accident in this undercover operation, you can imagine they were absolutely delighted because they thought for the first time we're actually going to get this guy. Um, guy wasn't the lead on that; he was brought in as the kind of helper or second in command to another undercover operation operator. Who um, Hook was supplying a number of different gangs. What often ha- often happens is when uh, the sort of word goes through the underworld that somebody's got a, a successful smuggling operation uh, planned or a successful form of transport you get two or three gangs who want to get their stuff onto that boat and this is what happened with hook that uh, there's a few different gangs in different parts of the country had heard that there was this guy who had a, a capability of bringing five or six tons of cannabis in and they wanted their stuff on the boat and uh, customs had managed to infiltrate one of these receiving gangs and it was through them that they got into hook the operation, again, we were talking earlier about dealing with disappointment. Uh, they sailed out in a boat, um, which Guy was on, two or three times to meet Hook's transport vessel. And on each occasion, the, the handover failed. Bad weather, or the criminals hadn't been able to get their act together, or they got the wrong coordinates. And so they went for one last try. Guy wasn't on the boat. Guy was going to be part of the receiving crew on shore. And they hit a storm in the Bay of Biscay. They managed to do the transfer of tons of cannabis. And then they turned for home in their little uh, tug that they bought for the occasion, which wasn't really suitable for ocean going transport. And the customs boat sank with four crew on board in, I think it was a force eight gale, huge winds. Um, they managed just about to make it into a rescue dinghy. One of them had to be uh, hauled out of the water by a colleague. And they had, a, I think, um, a tracking beacon or um, a satellite phone. And after a few hours out of contact and their HQ back in London thought that they were goners, they were picked up by a a Norwegian merchant vessel and had to climb up a Jacob's ladder down the side of the vessel and were rescued. But the job went ahead. Um, they'd, they'd lost the drugs, uh, which were now at the bottom of the uh, Bay of Biscay. So they found another six tons of cannabis in the Queen's warehouse at Bristol. 
and they took it out to sea, put it onto a, a vessel, which they said was then running it from the, the transport tug. The baddies didn't know that the transport tug had sunk and they ran it into shore and they arrested all of the shore party, Hook and all, all his crew and most of the other gangs as well. Um, you can imagine when it got to court and it found out that it, it was revealed that it wasn't the actual drugs that had been used, but it was these substitutes. The gang tried to, um, you know, get off on by saying that they, they had never actually tried to uh, import those particular drugs, but uh, it failed and they all got long sentences. Yeah, I'd wanted to ask you about that. And of course, when you say they found these other drugs, they had previously been seized in a different operation and were hadn't been yet destroyed because when customs or police across the world do seize drugs, they they burn them, I think, you know, uh, to get, they'd kept them. They hadn't quite got rid of them. So how, how long was Guy working undercover? And maybe we'll talk a little bit about his other life, his real life or his private life, whatever you'd say. Approximately 10 years, which is probably as long as anybody should do it. In, in fact, probably a bit longer. And then at the end of that, he actually went on to run the team. So he became the the SIO, the, the immediate line manager in charge of the team. His his other life was a, as a happily married man and father. Um, he fortunately had a very understanding wife who um, was herself a customs officer. So she understood the, the sort of stresses and the nature of the work that he was doing. There was only so much he could tell her, um, but she kind of understood what to ask and what not to ask. He kept his, his home life was was almost sort of blissfully peaceful. He was he he made sure that he he had very simple hobbies. So he liked his gardening, he liked his cooking, he collects uh, he collects military medals um, uh, for bravery and um, uh, medals for people who've been wounded in combat. And he would literally divest himself of his role when he got home. He would take off the Hugo Boss suit and the the you know the the, the highly polished shoes and the shirt, and he would just become. A normal guy, um, <laughs> but it did it, it did cause a few issues because, of course, they could never tell the neighbours or the school at parents' evening what he really did, and because they they often saw him in his guise as you know going out in his sharp suit and his flash motor, they just assumed that he was a villain. So he had some rather frosty parents' evenings, I think, where the the uh, the head teacher was looking askance at this character and feeling very sorry for his wife and child that they had to live with this sort of brutish, loudmouthed, garish um, uh, drug trafficker. But uh, of course, that that wasn't the real him at all. Um, he was very much a role player, and what he suspects himself though, because later in life he suffered. Uh, he was diagnosed with leukemia, which he's been sort of. Um, uh, struggling with for about 20 years and then other forms of cancer as well and he feels that he internalized a lot of the stress so he often said he, he didn't show overt signs of the stress you know he didn't develop tics or twitches or or you know his behavior didn't change particularly but he thinks he internalized it a lot and maybe that damaged his health in in some other way i mean who knows but it kind of sounds plausible because of the, the stress that he was under now i know england is a huge place but uh he still was dealing with gangsters who were operating in the uk and all the rest of it and while there was a slim chance he could have walked into a parents evening and seen somebody uh who who you know he was trying to trick in his other life it happened to him once on the on a tube train in london he was with his wife 
and he he both saw and was seen by a very dangerous guy that he'd been he'd been getting to know uh, with the with the aim of targeting, and he somehow sort of gave his wife the eyes, and she knew immediately not to to disassociate from him, so pretended that she wasn't with him. And he went up to this guy and immediately struck up a conversation, fancy seeing you here, that kind of thing. And they they left the tube train together and walked off and had a quiet chat because he hadn't told these guys that he was married. So that wasn't part of his legend and it would have caught him out completely. Again, I think he was lucky that his wife knew the score, knew the job, but that could happen at any moment. I think one of the things that probably saved them on some occasions was the amount of work they did abroad. So there was much less chance of that happening. Um, but, it, but it could happen, yeah. They, they often had to meet in London. They would sometimes meet outdoors. Quite a, a favourite place was the sort of uh, south bank of the Thames out in the open. They would often hold meets there. And it was quite possible that a colleague could have come strolling along. But he was pretty lucky. And, and by and large, most of them were. Um, there weren't that many of them anyway. Uh, and by and large, most of them got away with it. I don't know of any glaring um, uh, examples where somebody walked into a situation like that and was completely blown. But it must have made his private world pretty small because you can you can only imagine that maybe the likes of that trip on a tube with his wife and child wouldn't have been that frequent. He probably would have avoided public situations with the, the family while he was working, um, concerts, whatever else. Did he talk about that or did it did it affect the marriage? Yes, I mean, a small circle of, of family and friends, uh, a lot of socialising with people in the job. So, you know, a, a very, very close-knit, um, got to know his not just his colleagues very well, but their families very well, um, because at least when they got together, they could, they could talk freely and understood. You know, if he was in other situations, social situations, he, he couldn't talk with any honesty about what he did. So I guess in many respects, your world shrinks. Um, but you accept that because, as I said, there is a time limit on it. You know that you're only doing this for a very short period of time. At any time, they could have asked to to move if, if you know, once enough was enough. And there would have been no resistance from their bosses who completely understood the pressures they were under. Some of them actually didn't last very very long at all. There was one or two who just simply couldn't hack it at all mm. and uh, moved out. Others found that they were much more suited, having gone through the training, to the role of being a handler. So this was the person who kept at arm's distance but was their immediate point of contact out in the field. Uh, and because they always had the handler there, I think they always felt they had a bit of a guardian angel, a bit of a connection to reality, even in the most dangerous situations. They had somebody looking after them. But that was a that was a very important role and one that they relied on a great deal. Mm. I mean, you can only imagine as well that you probably get to an age where your legend has to be too long and it, you know what I mean? It becomes unsustainable. Uh, you're better dipping in and out young people into the, into those roles. What about now then? I asked you that at the beginning and we sort of brushed over it. I mean, do we not know what's going on or do you think that the customs and possibly the police are still engaging in this hugely high risk work with human beings? I am, I am not sure that it is going on in quite the same way that Beta Projects did it for a number of reasons. Firstly, the customs role has changed. So in 2006 in the UK, they formed SOCA, the Serious Organised Crime Agency. 
and they took most of the sort of deep investigative function of customs into that. So the Customs National Investigation Service uh, ceased doing a lot of those, that sort of long-term stuff, and it went into soccer. Soccer then itself changed, became the National Crime Agency some years later. So they would be the people with that sort of lead role now. But it, it changed for a number of reasons. Firstly, the criminals obviously started to become aware of it, and, uh, you know, through court cases, basically. So uh, naturally, there's always this arms race, isn't there, between the, between the criminals and law enforcement, and that kind of moved things on a bit. Um, communications, um, you know, with, with the internet and encrypted communications also changed things. That it, it, There were so many different, so many more ways now in which you could communicate. You know, we're, we're doing this chat over Zoom today. Well, of course, that didn't exist then. So the, the necessity for face-to-face -face meets probably declined too. Also, the amount of surveillance and security cameras that are around now um, uh, often means you can watch people without having to get so close to them. You can conduct surveillance on, you know, um, with long range, with you know, spy planes are better and satellites and all this sort of thing. So I think technology has changed the nature of that work. Um, it's much easier to do background checks on somebody now, isn't it, with Google? Mm. You know, uh, so again, it's harder to build a secure legend. Almost everyone now, um, you know, if you think of the typical 25-year-old now, somebody who might be at an age where they would be recruited into an organisation like Beta Projects, well, three, four years before, they might have had a lot of social media presence with Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of thing. It's difficult to make all of that disappear. So, uh, but of course, you never know at that age that five years, six years later, you're going to work up, end up working undercover. So I think it's harder now. I think it's actually easier for the criminals in some respects to spot undercovers, but then they're more vulnerable through other methods of interception as well. And it's going to keep getting harder with the amount of social media being used by younger people. I mean, how will they ever, uh, you know, get rid of their their footprints? They won't. Maybe we have to breed children from a young age to work <laughs> Like, like gymnasts or footballers. Exactly. Well, the Russians are probably at it. We'll be lagging behind. Well, Peter Walsh, author of, co-author of The Betrayer with Guy Stanton and author of Drug War and Cocky, a course about the life and crimes of Curtis Warren. Thank you very much. Thank you, Nicola. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.